Turn, if you would, to Psalm chapter 4. Yes, we're going to try to make it through two psalms today. I don't even know if that's even possible for me. Last week we did Psalm 3. So we're working our way slowly through it. Psalm 3 was written by David, and we're actually told in the title of Psalm 3 the occasion that prompted him to write it, which was his fleeing from Absalom. Psalm 4, some people think, is a continuation or written about the same time. We're not really told. We are told it was written by David, and it covers some of the same ideas. Remember, David is being attacked. Most of David's life, he was being attacked by somebody. He is struggling, and in the midst of his struggle, he is pleading to God, he is praising God, and he is expecting God to protect him. So we pick up that theme in Psalm 4. Answer me when I call, O God, my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall you honor Shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek out lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and tr put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they, would, when, than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O, o Lord, make me dwell in safety. It ends with the idea of laying down to sleep because you know that God is going to protect you. We saw this last week in the lesson where he t comments about the fact that in the midst of this strife and difficulty, he was able to get a good night's sleep because he knew that God was watching out for him. Back to verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God, O God of my righteousness. He is acknowledging the fact that it is God that makes him righteous. We're going to see in this psalm and the next psalm, if we make it that far, that he is going to contrast in the next psalm all the evil, wicked deeds of those who are out to get him. He is going to list them in the next psalm. But he is going to say that God is his righteousness. It is God that sets him apart to be righteous. David is not claiming to be perfect. He is claiming to seek after God. And it is God's righteousness that he is relying on in order to be right before God. He is asking God to listen, to answer my prayer. How many of you have ever sat there and go, God, are you listening? Please pay attention. I've got something to say. I need your help. And that's what he's saying here. You have given me relief when I was in distress be gracious to me and hear my prayer. He is saying that in the past, when I needed you, you were there. And I'm asking you the same thing today. 
David had built a life of faith by doing what God asked him to do and then remembering what God had done when he asked him. So the next time he was able to say, I remember what you did. Now, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, has God done things for us in the past? Or has he not done things? Or has he done things and we just don't remember them? You know, we tend to put on our blinders and go, okay, God, what have you done for me in the last 20 minutes? Instead of remembering, keeping track of what God has done for us in the past. I mean, we know the top of that list is providing salvation for us. But so often we just forget. Throughout the Old Testament, God is continually reminding the people to remember. Set up a pillar of stone, and every time you see that pillar, remember what I did. Have this ceremony, and every time you have this ceremony, remember what I did. We have a tendency to forget. And when we forget, we then forget to remember that he will take care of us again as we meet new difficulties. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? What is he talking about here? My honor be turned to shame. What he has are people that are slandering him, saying untruths, saying things that turn his good deeds into a source of shame. How long, oh God, do I have to put up with all of these people saying lies about me, saying things that aren't true? When I serve you, they chastise me. They slander me and say that I'm doing something wrong. How long will you love vain words and seek out lies? What is a vain word? It's a word that just has no weight to it. It's just babbling. It is a falsehood that is done to obtain the wrong end. It is just saying things because you're trying to accomplish something other than the righteousness of God. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Let it be known that God has set apart, has set apart the godly. Huh. The Lord has set, who are these people? Those who follow after God. God has set apart the godly. What does it mean to set apart? You know, in the tabernacle, in the temple, there were certain items that were used in the worship ceremony. There was a bowl, there were candlesticks, there were curtains, there were things. Now, in one sense, they were very nicely made, but in a, one sense, they're just a candlestick, and they're just a bowl, and it's just a curtain. 
But they weren't just a candlestick, just a bowl, and just a curtain because they had been set apart for a particular purpose. And that purpose was to be holy. Wait a minute. That's what holy means, to be set apart for the service of God. These items, though they may have started with normal gold in this case, they may have started with something that everyone had, having been set apart, they were reserved for a holy purpose. My enemies are slandering me. Oh God, how long will they continue to share these lies? But I know that the godly have been set apart. They have been set aside for worship, for service to God. Now I think it's interesting, I actually didn't know this until this week, this word that is translated godly here is actually the same word we're going to see in the next psalm when we talk about God's steadfast love. The godly are those who have received God's steadfast love. We are the objects of his love. It is, there's nothing in this discussion about the godly are those who have done everything perfectly. They are those who are the recipients of God's steadfast love, and they are those who have been set apart for service to God. Guess what? That would be you and me. That would be us. That would be those who acknowledge in today's world Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of their lives. That's us. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Verse 1, God, are you there? I'm talking. But he gets here and he says, I know he is. I know he is. And I guess this is the difference between David and me most of the time. I can start in verse 1 real well. Are you listening? I know that. But David, because of his faith and his walk with God, knows that God has heard him before. He knows it. By faith, David knows that God has, will, and will continue to hear when he calls. And that's the promise that we have. You know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Be angry and do not sin. This is a nice verse. We see it in the New Testament repeated. What's the point of it? Well, let's look at it in the context here. I'm sitting here in a frightful mess. I'm in some conflict. 
It could be when he's running from Absalom. It could be one of many other situations in David's life. I know that there are people over there who are slandering me. I have done good things and they are slandering me. What is going to be my response when I know that people are slandering me, that people are chasing me, that people are after me? What is my response going to be? I'm going to be angry. I am going to be angry because these people are attacking me while I'm doing what God has called me to do. And David says, God, through David, tells us, be angry, but in that anger, do not sin. Throughout the Bible and throughout all known history, we have this tendency that when people are doing, well, sinful things to us, our natural response is to respond with something sinful. You hate me, I'm going to hate you back. You whack me, I'm going to whack you back. In fact, you whack me, I may whack you and all your friends. You lie to me, I'm going to lie to you. Our natural tendency is to respond in sin when sin is directed at us. Guess what? We're not supposed to do that. There is no sin that is committed toward us that gives us permission to sin in response. Now, I've actually had people question that, and there's actually some hard cases at the edge. Let me give you a little hint. Most of the time, the situations you and I are dealing with are not hard cases. We just want to get even. We just want to get back at them. If they are slandering me, I'm going to slander them. If they are attacking me, I'm going to attack them. But what does he say? Be angry. He's acknowledging the emotion. He's acknowledging the emotion. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts, on your beds, and be silent. How hard is that? How hard is it? When you are, you're not. But when you are the Son of God being nailed to a cross and you have this ability to zap everyone in front of you, and you don't do it. Why? Because God the Father had directed God the Son to accomplish our salvation. Now, if he can be silent, what should we do? Think about it. Now, this verse actually 
bothers me a bunch. And unfortunately, my wife is sitting here so she knows <laughs> because I do ponder things in my bed. <laughs> but it's never, well, it's rarely good, okay? What am I pondering? They did me wrong, they did me wrong, they did me wrong. I'm going, and two hours later, I'm still pondering. And wide away. And you got good point. You have someone that's actually saved you. Made that change where you don't have any last name. Yeah. What do you think David is pondering when he goes to bed? You know what? God took care of me yesterday. God took care of me the day before. The day before. The day before. <laughs> That's what he's thinking about. That's what he's pondering. What do we ponder? They done me wrong and I'm going to get them. No. David is thinking, God took care of me when I was running from the Philistines. God took care of me when I was running from Saul. God took care of me when I was doing this. God took care of me when I was doing that. God, it's all yours. What's the old joke? When you go to bed, turn all your problems over to God. He's going to be awake anyway. That's what we're called to do. And then be silent. You know what? One of the hardest things in life to do is to be silent. Now, we're all quiet sometimes. But when somebody's attacking us, when somebody is slandering us, when somebody is doing us wrong, I want somebody to know. Teresa knows what my favorite movie is, The Great Race, with Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon. And they're on an iceberg, and it's sinking. And Tony Curtis, the good guy, tells Professor Fate, the bad guy, we need to be quiet about this. And Professor Fate says, I'll be quiet about it until the water hits my bottom lip, and then I'm going to let somebody know. <laughs> we want somebody to know. Do you know how bad my life is? That's what we want. Trust. Wait. Allow God. Now, it is interesting. There are times in Scripture where we are told to speak. We are to make a response. We are to share the gospel. We are to tell people the reason for the hope that we have. We are to speak. There are times when we are to be silent. And I think you could make it through the book of Proverbs and begin to get an idea of when is which, which is when, whichever. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in God. Offer right sacrifices. <sighs> Do 
what you're supposed to do. Do what you are called to do. If God has told you to offer this sacrifice, you offer that sacrifice. Because once again, in the middle of conflict, in the middle of difficulty, when you're running away from some wicked guy who's trying to kill you, when everybody's out there is slandering, one of the first things that you'll give up are doing the things that you're supposed to do. In David's case, offering sacrifices. Guess what? What does Romans chapter 12 tell us to do? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That means give up your right to control what your body... Give it to God as a sacrifice to Him. Do what you're supposed to be doing and trust in God that He'll do what He has promised He will do. And guess what? He probably will. There are many who say, who will show us some good? I lift up the light of your face. I lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when they, their grain and their wine abound. So I've got the, well, in this case, the bad guys. And the bad guys are really happy when they have a full barn of grain and they have a full keg of wine. When their material circumstances are good, they feel good. And David is sitting here telling us, I have more joy than they have when they have everything they think they truly desire. We had a long lesson not that long ago in the book of Galatians when we worked through the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy. And we had a discussion about joy. Because in our modern minds, joy means happiness, which means all of my desires are met. I am comfortable. I'm having pleasure. Things are going well. All my children are behaving themselves. There's no disasters in the family. Everything is great. Then... I will be happy and then I will have joy. Biblically, joy has nothing to do with any of those things. Joy is the right relationship with God that allows you to trust in God in the midst of any and every circumstance. I mean, just we talked about it during that lesson. All these verses about I am being assaulted and I am experiencing joy. I am rejoicing in tribulation. I am finding joy in the midst of God working in my life to accomplish what he has decided is best for me. That is joy. And David is telling us, yeah, they may have full barns and they have, may have vats of wine, but I am finding my joy in God. In peace, I both lie down and sleep. 
For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I'm a big fan, you know, of locking the doors when you go to bed. You know, that's okay. You lock the doors of your car. But ultimately, ultimately, what is it that brings you safety? Because you see, somebody may break into your house, or they may not, and that's a bad thing, okay? It really is. But at the end of life, your safety is not determined by how much grain and how much wine, how many guns, how many bazookas you have around the house. Your safety is determined by are you going to heaven or are you not? I mean, we've had this discussion in here so many times. You look at the martyrs of the church, and sometimes you think the martyrs of the church lost. They died. They were killed. The bad guy won. And God just sits up there, Psalm chapter 2, and chuckles and says, are you nuts? I will, God says, take care of those who are my own. It may not be in this world, and to those who are following him, that's okay. Paul says, I can live, I can die, I just don't care. Well, he does care. He cares to do what God would have him to do. That's why David can sit here and get a good night's sleep because he knows that God will take care of him. Psalm chapter 5, to the choir master for the flutes. I think it's interesting. We do not have the flute music that goes with this psalm. I'm sure many people have written some, though. The same idea. Here we go again. You ready for it? Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I pray. Are you beginning to see a theme in these psalms? You know, I am sitting here looking forward to Psalm, well, Psalm chapter 8. You know, nice, glorious psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Praise, praise, praise. David is sitting here in the midst of difficulty over and over again, and unlike you and me, he sits down and he writes poetry. But his poetry is his prayers to God. He is telling us how, how to talk to God. God, I'm sitting here once again. I'm sitting here once again groaning. I'm sitting here once again being attacked by somebody else. You ever get that feeling? Here I am again, God. Yes, I took care of that guy that was after me, and you and your belovedness sent another guy after me. And I'm praying again. Now, if you're God, and you're not, if you're God, do you think you're sitting there going, oh my gosh, here's David again complaining to me again. 
arguing with me again. Not at all. This is David worshiping God in the midst of his difficulties, and God is saying, yeah, that's what I want. We were never created to live a life of independence from God at any point in our life. It was just not the way things were built. Give attention to the sound of my cries, my King and my God, for to you I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. I am going to offer the sacrifice. I'm going to do what I am called to do, what I have been told to do, what is my duty to do. I'm going to do it, and then I'm going to wait and watch to see how you work it all out. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before you, your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. What we're going to see here in the structure is we have these several verses talking about all the different forms of wickedness that God hates. Then we're going to have a couple of verses of praise to God, and then we're going to go back to the list of things that God hates. Why, does, why do we put this in the middle of a prayer to God? Why do we read this? What good is it? Notice that little note, which actually are in the scripture, at the beginning before verse 1, to the choir master. Now here's a real hard question. What does a choir master do? A choir master directs the choir. What is a choir? A group of people who are singing. And they all just left, by the way. I don't know if you noticed. They all get up and walk out just before I talk about them. A choir sings to the people. The choir would have been somewhere in the vicinity of the temple, singing to the people and telling them that God hates the wicked. Why? Because God hates the wicked, and you ought to know it. Back to Galatians. There's the fruit of the Spirit, and before that are the works of the flesh. And before that, we are told that these two cannot coexist. You're either being led by the Spirit or you're being led by the flesh. Pick one. David is directing the choir to tell the people that these are the things God doesn't like. Now, how do we feel about that today? Well, God's pretty intolerant. Why are you sitting here telling me that my life doesn't measure up? Why are you telling me that here's some things that this guy over there doesn't like when I want to do them? Because God knows that these things are not good for human flourishing. 
They're not. I mean, if God sat here and said, God hates people who whack themselves on the head with a sledgehammer repeatedly, we would know whacking yourself on the head with a sledgehammer repeatedly is not good for human flourishing. I was at my brother's house yesterday pouring concrete. And the group of us got into a discussion of all the stupid things we'd done while doing construction projects. And they were laughing at my brother because at one time he was going to get something off the roof, the ceiling, and he reached up there not realizing that the ceiling fan was on. But guess what? Getting whacked with a ceiling fan is not good for human flourishing. It's just not. David is directing the choir master through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to tell us that these things are not good. Don't do them. So the choir is sitting up there reciting, singing this song, telling the people, do not be bloodthirsty. Don't do it. There's several groups of people out there. One group has never been bloodthirsty and should learn from this that I shouldn't start to be bloodthirsty. But there may be a group out there that have been bloodthirsty and need to repent because they know God has told us that that is not good for human flourishing. But in our world today, there's another group out there that says, yeah, but I like to be bloodthirsty. And I think it's wrong of you to condemn me just because I choose to do something that you don't want me to. And God, <laughs> Psalm chapter 2, God just chuckles. Where is the grace of God in this passage. The grace of God is God telling us what things are bad for human flourishing. That is the grace of God. It isn't God being an ogre. It isn't God just trying to keep you from having fun in life. It is God telling us these things are bad for you. For you are not a God, verse 4, who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Here is the fundamental problem of all of humanity. You ready for this? This is simple. God created an Adam, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are walking around the garden having a chat with God. Every day they're having a chat with God. They fellowship with him continually. But then Adam and Eve decide to do things their own way, and they are separated from God. Why? Because God cannot dwell in the presence of evil. All the rest of human history Every religion ever created by mankind, every philosophy ever created by mankind is an attempt to solve that problem of how a 
fallen human being can enter the presence of a holy God to try to restore that fellowship that Adam and Eve had. But we know the solution to that problem. The solution to that problem is not coming up with a more stringent list of behaviors that you do or not do. The solution to that is the finished work of Jesus Christ who moves you from the side of sinner to the side of holy in the presence of God. That is the message of salvation. The boastful will not stand before your eyes. We can just make this list, okay? Boastful, evildoers, you destroy those who speak lies. No, we're not going to have a show of hands. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty. Who are the bloodthirsty? You know, remember, David is a warrior. David has spent his life killing people. And once he graduated from killing people, he moved to leading other people to kill people. But that doesn't make him bloodthirsty. The bloodthirsty are those who just crave violence. I crave the chaos, and I crave the destruction, and I want to kill some. No, that does not describe David. Remember the, what is it, the first chapter of Book of Proverbs? You know, you and your foolish, in your foolishness, line up with the guys who say, let's lay in wait for somebody's blood. That's who the bloodthirsty are. The bloodthirsty and deceitful man. The deceitful man is simply the one who is trying to say, hey, look at this, when they're really over here picking your pocket. They are not after what is good for you in your relationship with God. Our world, I hate to make broad generalizations, our world today is full of so much deceitfulness, it is just unimaginable. My personal opinion, and you've heard this before, most commercials on any media at all are deceitful. I'm sorry, guys. If you drive that car, the cute young thing is not going to be impressed with you. (laughs) They're just not. They're just not. It is deceitful. Verse 7. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. This is what David prays in the midst of the difficult situation, the circumstances that he is in. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, Remember I commented that steadfast love is the same thing that's used as godly as an adjective over in the previous psalm. 
what does steadfast love mean? Well, we know what love means, looking out for the good of the beloved. Steadfast means he's not giving up on you. He's not. If we make it that far, we will get to the psalm that is David's prayer after he's caught fooling around with Bathsheba. And guess what? He repents real well, real sincerely, but he trusts in God's steadfast love. David will, would probably admit that he made lots of mistakes in his life. We had a brief discussion, just a brief discussion, about this last week when we dealt with Absalom. The fact that he did not deal with Amnon when he had raped his sister. He did not deal with Absalom when he murdered Amnon. He didn't, I mean, he just didn't do what needed to be done. As a father and as a king, he just didn't do it. And he suffered for it. But in the midst of all of that, he relies on God's steadfast love. Through abundance of your steadfast love will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Now, I don't know about you. I'm David, and I'm running away. On Monday, I'm running away from the Philistines. On Tuesday, I'm running away from Saul. On Wednesday, I'm running away from one of my many wives. <laughs> On Thursday, it's the Philistines again. On, I mean, you get the picture. He's running away from all of these stuff. And guess what? He's not scared of any of them. He's running away from them, but he's not. Why? Because he fears God, and so he doesn't have to fear them. What does it mean to fear God? It means to have a certain awe and respect and the acknowledgement that God is God and you're not. You're not even in the ballpark. I mean, it's not even close. He enters God's temple and he acknowledges who God is. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Back to the list of bad things. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongues. Make them bear their guilt, O Lord. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. You know, this is good old-fashioned, Old Testament, God-zapping them kind of language, right? Except for the fact that when we get to the New Testament and Paul wants to talk about the state of humanity apart from God, what does he do? He quotes this verse. Their mouth is an open tomb. There's nothing but death in there. Why? Because humanity hasn't changed. It hasn't. This is a description of all of humanity apart from God. Wait, just wait, 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 wait. I know some nice, yeah, you do. You know some nice pagans. And I don't, I mean, I, that's just the word I use for people who aren't 
Christian. But guess what? The end of that path is destruction. It is not so much that David is relishing the thought that these people are going to die a miserable death as much as he is acknowledging the fact that they are going to die a miserable death. You have to make the decision. You're either going to enter God's temple, trust his steadfast love, rely on him, or you're going to do it your own way. And all the Bible is telling us is the end result of this path over here is life. And the end result of this path is death and destruction. David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling the choir master to tell the choir to sing to the people, choose that path over there. And that's why I stand up here and read this. But let all, verse 11, who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover them with a favor as with a shield. We had this discussion last week because we know that David knew the value, the importance of a shield. It was the protection on the battlefield. The bad guys are shooting arrows, they're throwing darts, they're swinging swords, and the only thing that's going to stop that is the shield. And in human terms, that shield eventually will give up. It'll get beaten, it'll get broken. But David says, I know that I have a shield that isn't going to be broken. And that shield is God. And that shield is his steadfast love for me. And because of that, I can get a good night's sleep. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you are our shield and our protection. I pray, Lord, that we, like David, would trust in you and not ourselves. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.